Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Well, stocks tumbling today. Every S&P sector in the red as the 10-year yield tested its October high. That is the scorecard on Wall Street. But the action is just getting started. Welcome to Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan with John Fort. Coming up this hour, Kava serves up its first report as a publicly traded company. The Mediterranean chain is about to post its first quarterly earnings release since it did go public in June. And the stock has more than doubled from its IPO price. We're going to bring you those numbers as soon as they cross. Plus, an inside look at the race for a steel deal. We'll be joined by the CEO of privately held Smart, which late yesterday made what looks like a $7.8 billion offer for U.S. steel. On paper, topping the $7.3 billion bid from Cleveland Cliffs, but short on details on where the money's coming from. All right. So we're going to try and get some more of those today here. Let's begin with the market action and... More pain for the bulls. Weak China data and a ratings agency warning about the banks set the tone for a downbeat session. Joining us now to discuss is Paul Hickey from Bespoke Investment Group and Phil Camparelli from J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Good afternoon to you both. Phil, you're here on set. Want to get your thoughts on the market yep. at, at these levels. I mean, the S&P closed right near session lows, uh, down about 1.2 percent. Um, we could talk about the weak data coming out of China. We can talk about more concern around the banks, but we can also talk about yields. Yep testing the October highs. Yeah, so the yield story for us is probably the biggest risk. It has to be because, you know, there's you get to that 420 level based on two things. Either inflation isn't cooperating or growth is cooperating. And it's a growth story, Morgan. So that's very, very different from where we were when you said test the October highs. Last October, we were between 6 and 8% on inflation. People worried about inflation back then. Now it's a story of, okay, now it's almost impossible to get two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth with jobs pulling back this year. The recession is off the table. And then the 4.2% yield hitting that back in October, I think that makes some sense. One more thing. I don't think the Fed really has any any um, kind of need for the 10-year Treasury to fall because of the housing market. They really need a seven and a quarter percent mortgage rate because the last thing that they need is a reignition of something like owner's equivalent rent that can create just a, a, a another bad story on inflation. So I think that story. But again, this is a high-class problem because of the growth story. It's very, very different from where we were last year when inflation was still between six and eight percent. Yeah, Paul, I want to get your thoughts on this, um, especially because you've Start to see this narrative uh, trickle into this mark into the market of not just the possibility of a soft landing, but also of no landing, which might actually put the Fed in a conundrum. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think when you to Phil's point, the biggest uh, issue I think for the market in the short term here is the increase in interest rates uh, staying higher for longer. Uh, that that's going to weigh on things in the short term here. But you know, you just have to take a step back also. We're in the month of August, historically weak period of year. Towards the end of July, investors started to get offsides. We saw what was some extreme readings in overall um, market strength. Uh, the NASDAQ 100, 25% above its 200-day moving average. The S&P 500 overbought since Memorial Day. 
The NASDAQ overbought since Cinco de Mayo, five-month winning streaks for the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. So these are all uh, factors that led some investors maybe to believe that the market could only go higher here. And coupled with the weak seasonality, I think uh, investors getting a little bit of a reality check, which is good for the market overall. Longer term, though, what you have to remember is these types of extreme readings we've seen in overbought levels are indicative of bull markets and not bear markets. And so I think from a long-term perspective, you see a short-term pullback, which is healthy here. Uh, and as I said last time, we don't know where the market is gonna be in the short term, but we're pretty confident that it's gonna be higher by the end of the year, and we still feel that way now. Oh, okay. Well, Phil, yeah. these rates are a danger if you're looking for an excuse to buy stocks, mm -hmm. right? But if you're kind of constructing and strategizing over your portfolio, yeah. Why doesn't it make sense to acquire bonds, bond funds here, yeah. right, where you'll, you'll make a good amount of money off the yield if things stay roughly where they are, but if the Fed does cut rates later, you can sell some of that and make some money and then, you know, do something with it, right? John, like, you you're hired yourself? and you're speaking my language here. <laughs> I run a multi-asset portfolio where I have to beat a 60-40 uh, index. That 40 part of the index, we think, is very, very attractive because we haven't even talked about how inverted the yield curve is. So in the one to five year part of the curve, John, I can get close to 8% in high quality, high yield. That is an anti-recession trade. I think that's a really important point. And if we avoid recession And that 8%, rates, yeah. that almost kind of historically beats the S&P. Yes, the long-term <laughs> capital market assumption for the S&P is below 8%. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So that's that's part of it. The other part of it is, okay, let's say we head into next year and one or two things happen. The hard landing happens, rates are going to fall. But if the soft landing happens and we avoid recession, stocks will be okay and I still get the yield. So, John, I think it's a really important point that you just made, the asymmetry in fixed income at this point. The only thing that keeps me up at night would be if the Fed had to come back and do 25 or 50 basis point cuts because inflation mm. was accelerating. We assign a very low probability to that. To that right now. Okay, so Paul, I know you say from a, a technical, historical perspective, uh, this looks like a bull market, <coughs> but uh, what about, how much risk is there that we don't go much higher from here? I mean, it's not binary, right? So how are you factoring in the risk, given what we're seeing in the strength of the economy, what is or isn't likely to happen with rates? So, I mean, I think, you know, you look at valuations of the market, you know, the overall market valuation is rich uh, relative to history. But again, we talk about the Magnificent Seven, so to speak. They're driving a lot of that valuation uh, premium. You look underneath in mid caps and small caps, you're, you're seeing multiples in some cases in the high single digits to low double digits. And when you make the, you know, the this or that choice between stocks and bonds, a mix is definitely a, a good idea for a lot of investors. But when you talk about high yield, like the, the yields uh, that you get in treasuries or some corporate bonds being higher than the earnings yield of the S&P 500, we saw that situation from the early 80s to the late 90s, where the earnings yield of the S&P 500 was routinely less than the yield on uh, treasuries on the 10-year yield. And during that period, it was a great period to be invested in equity. So the just the fact that you have an attractive yield in the fixed income market doesn't necessarily mean that stocks should be avoided. So we just talked about short duration mm -hmm. um, bonds and the yep. opportunity there. If you're trying to if you're trying to 
beat or outperform the 60-40 portfolio? What are some of the other ways that you do that? So in the near term, it has to be yield. It has to be getting more yield. And yield is a less glamorous form of alpha, but it is a form of alpha yield you're next. The other piece, Morgan, and he mentioned, the uh, Paul mentioned the Magnificent Seven. You know, under the hood, if we avoid recession, as I call it, the S&P 493, so everything else, right, that has, that has better valuations, you can security select inside of the index and make alpha that way. So I don't think this is a major move in the index through the end of the year. I think most of the alpha is going to come from fixed income. But the stuff that got left behind, as folks are now warming up to the fact that we're probably going to avoid recession over the next six, nine months, that stuff we think can outperform just the index of the, uh, of, of, of the equity market. All right. Phil, Paul, thank you both. Great way to start the show. But now right on to the next. Agilent earnings are out. Pippa Stevens has the numbers. Pippa. Hey, John. Well, Agilent beating uh, earnings estimates on both the top and bottom line. EPS coming in at 143 per share on an adjusted basis ahead of the 136 that Wall Street was expecting. Revenue, a slight beat here at $1.67 billion. However, what seems to be weighing on the stock here is that the company did cut its full-year revenue and EPS guidance, which is now short of Wall Street estimates. And the CEO pointed to a challenging macroeconomic market condition and said that that was especially true in China during the latest quarter. John? Interesting. Pippa Stevens, thank you. Uh, now, tomorrow is the anniversary of the August 2022 market peak. Let's bring in senior markets commentator Michael Santoli with a look at how the market has performed since then. Mike? Yeah, John. Well, badly and then very well and now kind of in the middle, actually. Yes, it was just about 4,300 on August 16th of last year. We had that summertime peak. It's basically the high point for the second half of 2022. That was also uh, when Fed Chair Jay Powell at Jackson Hole more or less sternly told the market not to expect any uh, acts of generosity from Fed policy anytime soon. And rates were also screaming higher. Treasury yields were. However, going above 3% toward 3.5%, not 4% toward 5.5%. I think that's very important. The absolute level might not matter that much. The market just has to get accustomed and internalize what it means to have rates at that level. Now, where does it bring us? Uh, this level, what we were kind of flirting with much of the day and then ultimately cracked just slightly below uh, was last week's low. And also what I keep pointing to is that July 12th pop higher on a really benign CPI report. So we've now gone below that level, also closed below the 50-day moving average. So definitely uh, a little bit of backing and filling at minimum down three and a half or so, 3%. From the, uh, from the closing highs. So it's not necessarily like it's cut into muscle uh, just yet. I would also point out uh, these other levels in the, in the 43s, uh, 4350 area that would also be watched. I think a lot of folks thinking that we might get down there and then be kind of oversold and have basically done what we needed to do with this uh, August pullback. Take a look here uh, at the subsector of the market that Agilent Technologies belongs to. It's the lab and medical and scientific devices subsector. Uh, so this is uh, Agilent. Mettler Toledo is another one. Waters Corp is another. They've actually had a very tough year as a group, as you can see, underperforming the S&P 500 significantly. A lot of spending cuts from some of their customers in pharmaceuticals and biotech and some other areas. Very much a favored group of growth investors in recent years. The, the PEs on forward PEs were up around 35 and above for some of these stocks just a couple of years ago. Now they're down in the, in the 20 zone, but clearly uh, they still have a little work to do to figure out exactly what the current run rate of demand is going to be uh, in this subsector, John. Yeah, um, not, not like the AI stocks. They're having a, a different That's right. feel. If you're playing on the other hand with me at the moment, what would be the argument for the market 
really being in a rough spot here and going below 4,300 if you had to make one? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I think it's basically that yields become unanchored uh, because inflation is going to remain high and the Fed decides that it has to really uh, suppress demand that much more. I personally don't think the Fed going at the pace it's going right now uh, is necessarily the, the enemy number one of the stock market. But I do think the idea that the Fed's not done in combination with maybe we're sort of uh, in a reacceleration in the economy for now, but that's going to raise the likelihood of a hard landing later. That to me is the equation that gets the market concerned. Yeah, it's also worth noting the S&P 500 today closing below its 50-day moving average. First time we've seen that since late March. Mike Santoli, we'll see you later in the hour. Yep. Thank you. H&R Block earnings are out. Let's get to Pippa Stevens with those numbers. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Morgan. That stock is higher after H&R Block be on the top and bottom line during Q4. The company earned $2.05 per share, excluding items, which was ahead of the 188 estimate. Revenue coming in at $1.03 billion, slightly ahead of expectations. H&R Block also announced a 10% increase in its quarterly dividend and said that during the latest quarter, it repurchased $200 million worth of stock, meaning that in the past year, the company has repurchased 9% of shares outstanding. That stock up 6%. John? Uh, Pippa, thanks. Uh, speaking of, Kava earnings are out. We are going through them. That stock has at least initially popped higher, almost 6%. After the break, we'll have that. And what do these results from Home Depot we got this morning tell us about the state of the consumer? And what should you expect later in the week from Target, Walmart, TJX? We will ask a top portfolio manager who owns many of those names when Overtime comes right back. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselcumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at Tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Welcome back. Kava, Kava's earnings are out, and Kate Rogers has the numbers. Hi, Kate. Hey there, Morgan. So this is the first report once again for Kava since going public. We've got a 21 cent gap uh, EPS number here. Revenue a beat 173 million uh, versus the analyst revenue estimate of 163.2 million. Kava's average unit volumes 2.6 million. That is compared to the 2.4 million it had in the prior year quarter. Its same restaurant sales growth 18.2 percent, and its digital revenue mix was 31.6 percent. As you can see. The the stock is higher right now, also giving some guidance. Full year same store sales growth up 13 to 15 percent. And the call is at five. We'll bring you any updates as we get them, Morgan. Back over to you. All right. Sounds good, Kate. We know you'll be monitoring that. Kava CEO will break down those results tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern on Squawk on the Street. And now let's get reaction on Kava and the rest of retail. Joining us now, John San Marco, research analyst, portfolio manager of Newberger Berman's Connected Consumer ETF 
along with Deborah Weinswig, uh, CoreSight Research CEO. Um, let's see. Uh, Deborah, first, your take on Kava here. I mean, the bar was kind of high. It, it had rallied since its uh, IPO, and they appear to have cleared it. I mean, you look at the top line growth, you look at the gross margins, I mean, at 400, 400 basis points year on year, you know, net new store openings. And I think on the same store sales level, you know, certainly exceed in all directions. So everything seems to be from a efficiency perspective, technology perspective, firing on all cylinders, really. Okay, so John, taking a, a step back into retail in general, I'm really interested in TJX and Ross later this week because Walmart's got the whole grocery thing going on. That's a kind of a different story. But I'm, I'm curious whether the treasure hunting aspect uh, of the consumer's spending continues even as we're seeing these credit card balances reaching levels higher than they've been in recent years. What are you expecting to see? Sure. Off-price off is, is broadly you know, very well positioned. There's a great supply story in that you know, what's been very challenging for for full price retailers, is you know the, the inventory misses and the merchandise misses you've seen, you know, in on mall retailers, et cetera. All all, all of that uh, supply uh, accrues to TJX. They'll be able to to buy better, so they should have great merchandise at great prices. And and then they're also positioned well for this this trade down dynamic where consumers are, are looking to stretch their their dollar a little further. So we're pretty optimistic, particularly on TJX, which is one of our our larger holdings. Yeah. Deborah, I want to get your thoughts on Walmart versus Target, especially since we know Walmart has a formidable grocery business that has helped power those results in recent quarters. And Target tends to lean more discretionary and has felt the impact of that. It's perfect timing on this. We actually published a piece about how their financial health is thriving. Uh, we've done, gosh, for years, a, a weekly survey of consumers, and we've seen a significant increase in consumer shopping in the last five weeks at Walmart, not only for grocery, but also for non-food, apparel, footwear, accessories. And so we think that they're poised incredibly well for you know the quarter. They've had less shrink issues than Target has. Target, you know, seems to be pretty steady as she goes. I think there is, you know, kind of definitely more of obviously a discretionary story there. Also, you have a younger customer and the concerns there right now are around is these kind of loan repayments are waiting in the wings, but the impact will be on Target and its core customer. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Deborah, though, has has Target gone down enough? Are expectations low enough that it could do something here? I, I yes, absolutely. I think that it. I think that expectations have decelerated enough that you know there's been so much talk around what they've seen on shrink and also the discretionary side. I do think that that is absolutely waiting in the wings for them, and they've continued to focus on efficiency and productivity, which I think is getting them outsized gains versus some of their competitors. Yeah, John, I'm, I just want to circle back on Kava for a second here because I, I know there's a you have a small stake um, in your fund uh, tied to Kava as well. So I do want to get your reaction to those on the in the ETF. So I do want to get your reaction to those results and, and just expand it out a little bit more broadly to say, um, what does it say about a digital first or a digital inclusive strategy, whether it's on the restaurant side or, by the way, whether it's on the e-commerce side with some of these big retailers? Sure. So perhaps firstly, I'll say we wish we had a larger stake, but valuation is quite quite demanding. So it makes it kind of difficult from a valuation discipline perspective to be too aggressive there. We love the long-term story, the quarter, whether it's the digital piece you mentioned or the average unit volume improvement that I think was mentioned before our discussion, all sort of confirms the longer-term story here, which is there's an enormous amount of white space for them to triple or quadruple 
their restaurant count where they where they drive really great returns. And that digital piece is, is really important. I wouldn't wouldn't undersell that. It's it's critically important to their core consumer, which is a Gen Z, Gen Y consumer interested in their their differentiated offering and, and want to engage digitally. Deborah, how important is back to school and, and that season? And is it a tell for the all important holiday season later this year? Absolutely. There's a direct connection between actually it's interesting back to school Halloween and holiday. We've actually seen a very early strength in Halloween sales. We actually have retailers who've told us they're already out of stock on some of the highly discretionary items. And what we're hmm. seeing is that back to school has started off once again, better than people have expected. You know, a lot of it is around basics, but that still is a very, and you know, what we're seeing too, right? I think quarter target has had 12 quarters of positive growth. Once again, we're seeing strong traffic there for back to school as well. John, uh, how are you factoring in the degree to which the consumer is stretched on credit for what you expect to happen in retail? I mean, we see this dynamic, especially with Walmart, where um, when times are tough, people go there for groceries who normally might not, and then maybe they pick up other sales as well. But are there follow-through effects on other retailers? Sure. I mean, the, the credit piece specifically is one of uh, it, it's a new challenge to the, the big ticket discretionary purchase, which has really been under pressure for uh, the last year and a half or so. And, and to the extent it gets harder, harder for the consumer to access credit and, and make some of those purchases, um, that's a problem that, that will persist. Uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's part of the equation. Uh, you know, I think I think the net of all the positives for the consumer, like the labor market and disinflation, and the negatives, such as credit, which which you mentioned, I think the net of it is slightly positive. I think the consumer is going to kind of continue to, to crawl along. And we are very much favoring some of these trade down names, such as Walmart. Uh, Dollar Tree is actually the largest position in, in the portfolio uh, who can benefit from consumer distress by offering great value. All right. Uh, John and Deborah, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Up next. Thank you. The case first steel deal. The CEO of privately held Esmark talks about his company's bid for U.S. Steel, which followed a rejected offer from Cleveland Cliffs. And later, solar stocks haven't exactly been shining since the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act one year ago this week. We'll talk to the CEO of Sunrun about the impact from the climate change funding included in that legislation. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Overtime. The battle for U.S. Steel heats up. Privately held steel firm Esmark offering $35 a share in cash for the company. This comes after U.S. Steel rejected a cash and stock offer from Cleveland Cliffs. Some analysts questioning, questioning if Esmark has the cash to do this. And Cleveland Cliffs CEO Lorenzo Gonsalves telling CNBC, quote, I don't believe this is a credible offer. Joining us now in an exclusive interview, Esmark CEO Jim Bouchard. Jim, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Hey, Morgan. Thank you very much. So I want to start right there. Uh, your response to the response from Cleveland Cliffs CEO on why this is a credible offer. Well, it's great. He has a ton of debt. Okay, he's paying his debt down. It's good. We have no debt. We, we run off of cash. 
you know, and I've been with U.S. Steel for 20 years. I was a chairman CEO of Wheeling Pittsburgh Steel, and we had a tremendous amount of debt. So I have based my company off of no debt. You have tremendous credit facilities that are untapped. And uh, so this is this is not this is not a big transit. This is actually the reason Cleveland Cliffs is offering cash and stock is because they don't have cash. Okay. Um, I have the cash. We have the cash. Yeah. Uh, I guess so. Two questions for you here. Then, have you heard back from U.S. Steel on your offer? Uh, U.S. Steel, I believe, is. I think they were having a emergency board meeting this afternoon, and I think they are. Okay. Again, the board will make whatever decision they make. However, we are supportive. You know, I've been with U.S. Steel a long time. Yeah. Love U.S. Steel. So we're supportive of U.S. Steel. So this is not a hostile offer. And if we have to sit down at the table with U.S. Steel to help reconstruct it, we will do that. So, yeah. And you talked about the fact that you have the cash um, and I know you're a privately held company, so you're not necessarily disclosing the same type of financials that uh, that some of the, your public. It's all federally documented because we were a public company. Got it. Under Wheeling Pittsburgh Steel when we acquire them. So yeah. everybody, there, there's no secrets here. Uh, got it. So so when analysts like, for example, those at Gordon Haskett say, you know, question whether this is a real offer, and they say, "quote unquote," lack of financing deals and flowery press release are red flags. You would say that that's not true. Uh, just go to all federal documents, the United States government. It's all federal documents. They have it's all there. Okay, so Jim, why doesn't the uh, Steelworkers Union want you to to get this prize? Then, what are they missing? Um, yeah, why not? They say they, they only John, want the that, other deal to That's a very good done. question. So I've had talks this afternoon with Tom Conway, Dave McCall, um, and uh, text back and forth. So it's, it's, it's very complexing because we are all, all of our plants are United Steelworkers plants. Okay. Um, we have enjoined and engaged, and we have fairly bargained and recently put in United Steelworkers agreements even over the last 12 months. All right. So you okay. say and, this is, they this know is cash. I am a union-friendly guy. All right. Okay, so we don't have to make places non-union. We can make money. We have profit sharing. Even though the market's bad, GDP's down, we have continued every month to pay profit sharing to our union employees. So, um, and how we much, have laid off. How we much have debt, laid off nobody. How much debt are you going to have to take on in order to make good on this seven point eight billion dollar offer? I mean, I take it you don't have eight billion dollars in cash just sitting around. So, how is that going to work? Are you going to have to put some of your commercial real estate holdings up as collateral here? That's a good question. Unfortunately, we have ten billion in cash committed to the deal. And we are not putting up any of Esmark's assets, period, as collateral. Um, so, Jim, let's talk a little bit about the strategy here, because it, it is unusual um, to see a company such as yours, which is focused on processing and dri- distributing steel products, uh, make a play for the actual uh 
production uh, of, the raw, of the raw metals. Why does this make sense? And what does it enable that's not already out in the marketplace? Again, it's the perfect question. So we did this at Wheeling Pit. So little old Esmark, we bought Wheeling Pit as a service center and we bought out a big production public company. However, I'm just going to tell you, I, I don't want to be sexist or anything on this thing, but okay, when you mate a dinosaur with a dinosaur, you get a dinosaur. Okay, and that's what Cleveland Cliffs is going to do with U.S. Steel. So all they're going to do is create another dinosaur and they're going to continue to shrink. So one thing I learned from, you know, the CEO and chairman of U.S. Steel, Tom Usher, which is my biggest fan, and Roy Dorrance, vice chairman, is we have to create a gazelle. Okay. okay. So, so well, when I, mean, I created I... Smart, we deliver our steel products in 24 to 48 hours. Well, I'm thinking that that's not sexist because you didn't say which was the male and which was the female dinosaur uh, in that scenario, though I, I guess it's shade at the existing steel producers. Uh, how long are you going to give this? And uh, really, it seems like the union's opposition to you being a part of this transaction is a pretty big hurdle. So uh, how long are you giving yourself to clear it? Uh, it, it is not a hurdle because we have an agreement signed with the United States Steel Workers. They will live by that agreement under federal law. So there is no hurdle. But I, it's my understanding that they have the right under collective bargaining to say we don't like the deal. You, th you say no? No. Nope. Guess we'll see. Jim, thank you. Uh, time for a CNBC News update now with Bertha Coombs. Bertha. Hey, John. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is asking Congress to approve a supplemental package to help Hawaii recover from the wildfires. The $13 billion package would replenish the federal disaster funds. Last week, the Biden administration requested that amount in overall disaster funds as part of a $40 billion package that includes money for the war effort in Ukraine. A former high-ranking FBI counterintelligence agent pled guilty to a conspiracy charge for aiding a Russian oligarch. Charles McGonagall admitted to working for the oligarch after leaving the agency. Sentencing is scheduled for December. The ex-agent could face up to five years in prison. And yet another sign that the way we watch TV is changing. According to Nielsen, broadcast and cable TV viewing in July dropped below 50% of the total share of viewers for the first time. Never happened before. One big beneficiary, the legal drama Suits. Meghan Markle and her co-stars had the most streamed show in America last month, watched collectively for 18 million minutes. I would imagine no small part of that is the writers and actors strike, and that could likely continue into the fall. Who knew that that would boost Meghan Markle's popularity? <laughs> Bertha, thank you. Up next, mixed signals in the housing market. Home builder sentiment dropping sharply, according to new data. But Warren Buffett is buying in the sector. Mike Santoli takes a long-term look at the space. Next. And as we head to break, check out the biggest decliners today in the S&P 500. Discover Financial was at the bottom of the list. You saw a leadership change there, followed by PayPal and First Solar. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Overtime. Rising mortgage rates, driving home builder sentiment downward in August. That's according to today's results of the NAHB survey. This comes after Berkshire Hathaway bought shares of DR Horton, NRV, and Lennar in the second quarter. 
Mike Santoli is back with a look at the sector, which did, at least with those names, buck the downtrend we saw today, Mike. It did, Morgan. In fact, the whole group was up in a weekday for the market, up about uh, 0.7%, the ITB uh, home builder uh, ETF. Now, it has flattened out a bit, as you can see, huge gains on a one-year basis, over 40% compared to the market. Uh, and, of course, it's feeding off of all those dynamics, the tightness of the market, the fact that there's no existing home supply to speak of out there, and they're able to buy down, to some degree, interest rates uh, in, in the face of high mortgage rates. However, as you mentioned, the NAHB survey, that downturn in the latest months, it brings it right back to the middle of its very long-term range. You can take a look at it uh, right here. So even though the longer-term fundamentals and demographics are in favor of home builders, they're talking about higher construction costs, very difficult affordability equation for most buyers. Uh, yes, those mortgage rates are a part of that and difficulty of, uh, of finding workers. So you see a kind of middling. It seems as if you could basically say the housing market is off the bottom, but it is definitely not a strong engine of further growth. And maybe it's just having this kind of fitful recovery out there. And it's hard to see if rates stay where they are, how that's necessarily going to change anytime soon. But at least it's not an outright drag on overall economic activity at the moment. All right. Um, all right. I was just going to say, uh, Mike, I just I, I wonder if there is a point at which we were just having this conversation with Phil Camprielli, um on set earlier today. This idea that the Fed would actually like to see mortgage rates staying at seven and a half percent potentially or seven percent and, you know, continue to see a drag on housing um, as one area where inflation could continue to tamp down. Um, I, I guess I'm trying to wrap my head around how that math continues to work in an environment where the market is um, waiting for or hoping for peak disinflation or peak inflation, I should say, yeah. narratives from the Fed at Jackson Hole next later this month. Yeah, it's I mean, I, I, I would say the Fed certainly probably doesn't mind seeing interest rates up here at 7 percent, doesn't mind the fact that housing itself is not driving uh, further push higher in inflation. I'm not sure it's a it's the you know central objective is for them to really weaken the housing market much more than it is right now. Mostly, I think what we have to wait for is a lot of those lagged effects of the inflation measures to work their way through. Uh, it's probably going to happen over the next few months. The question is whether that's going to be enough. I, again, I, I don't think that the Fed has to be very militant about the message next uh, next week at Jackson Hole, but they, they clearly are not going to offer a, a kind of a mission accomplished one either. All right. Mike, thanks. Up next, the director of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau on his plan to crack down on data brokers and whether he's concerned about American credit card debt hitting a record $1 trillion. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The CFPB announcing stricter rules for companies that track and sell people's personal data at an event today at the White House. The agency saying the explosion of AI into the mainstream and the data it requires has sparked the need for more oversight. The big three credit bureaus in the U.S., Experian, Equifax and TransUnion, all finishing lower. Joining us now is Rohit Chopra, director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, Rohit, welcome. So I actually want to start a step back with the consumer credit situation right now. Um, I, I think the average consumer carries a credit card debt of close to $6,000, the highest in a decade. And uh, the rate of new delinquencies has surpassed its pre-COVID level. So what are you seeing from consumers and perhaps some in the market trying to take advantage of consumers uh, in, in this situation? Well, so far, we've seen an aggregate trillion dollars. 
that American consumers owe on credit cards. It's still one of the biggest lending products people have. One of the things we're looking for is when student loan payments restart, is that going to create some additional stress um, for credit card borrowers? We're also looking hard at what are the rates people are paying? We see real impacts of higher interest rates and also other pieces of the consumer credit uh, market, including auto loans. So, so far, we're not panicking in any way. It has returned to normal, but there are slices of the public who are experiencing stress, and we're trying to make sure that everyone is following the law and, frankly, that consumers know what they're getting into. I noticed that you've taken actions lately against some lease-to-own companies, uh, you know, some auto lenders who uh, you say are, are engaging in, in practices that are not great for the subprime market. I wonder what you're seeing from buy now, pay later, right? Because they presented themselves as a more consumer-friendly alternative to some of the other products out there. Uh, are they relatively straight and narrow so far? Well, what we have said is that we would like the buy now, pay later firms to really observe some of the same protections as credit card companies when it comes to disputes and returns, when it comes to fees. We want consumers to have a lot of choice, but we don't want there being a lot of arbitrage around the rules. So what we are doing is we are supervising those firms to make sure they're playing by the rules um, and looking at ways in which their business model is evolving. We are seeing some signs that they're creeping toward more of a Chinese-style model that we see with Alipay and, and other firms, WeChat Pay, and how they might be combining payments and data surveillance into their business model. So it's certainly a place we're keeping our eye on. Yeah, uh, it's great to have you back on the show. I do want to get to the news of the day, and specifically when we talk about um, the need for more o oversight of the data broker industry, um, what's constituting a data broker in this day and age when data is the bedrock of everything, particularly from a digital standpoint? And how do you apply a 1970 law to that since the world is so different now? You know what's interesting? We've had laws on the books for not just decades, but actually over 100 years in certain circumstances about how we put and draw the line around invasive surveillance practices. We've had state peeping Tom laws, other privacy laws. So what we wanted to look at was how were some data brokers copying um, the firms that were more like credit reporting agencies or background screening companies. We found incidents where uh, data brokers were assembling very, very detailed profiles on people, monetizing them and often feeding artificial intelligence predictive analytics. So I think we're looking at what are the types of business practices they're using to harvest our data. And if so, shouldn't they abide by some of the same transparency, um, accuracy and other standards that have long been observed in our country? So at a time where everybody's focused on AI and some of these new applications like generative AI and what this is going to mean from a regulatory standpoint, this news today uh, is basically, should we call it kind of a first shot out of the gate, at least from your purview within um, your part of the government to actually regulate and set some guardrails on it? Well, well, what I think we're going is we're going to be proposing some rules that I think level the playing field 
between those that are already acting as credit reporting agencies as well as the other firms that are copying them. We're also doing other things when it comes to algorithmic and AI lending to make sure that it's on a level playing field with those that are in brick and mortar. I think the end result of this is that consumers will have a little bit more control and confidence on how their data is being used and that we won't have innovation that's just exploiting loopholes and will close them so that there really is fair competition in the markets. Rohit, what's going to happen to the lower income consumer in this AI-driven data environment? And how closely are you watching that in particular? Well, we are. And I think the concern that many have is, is AI reinforcing long-standing biases that have already existed? If there's groups of consumers who have been shut out of the system, is AI going to just perpetuate that? So we are also going to be putting forth more ways for lenders and others to use um, transaction and payments data um, and create a more open banking ecosystem so that consumers can get credit for their real cash flow rather than these inferences that are mysterious um, and are more opaque. Rahit Chopra, uh, director of the CFPB, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Morgan. The Inflation Reduction Act was supposed to be a boon for solar stocks, but one year later, it's been nothing but dark skies. The CEO of Sunrun explains why huge solar incentives have not turned into big gains for shareholders, at least not yet. That's coming up later on Overtime. Welcome back to Overtime. Let's get a check on some of today's After Hours Movers. Kava topping revenue estimates in its first earnings report as a public company, saying it sees same-store sales climbing 13 to 15 percent for the full year. Those shares are up about 11.5 percent right now. Meantime, shares of Agilent are lower, despite a beat on both lines, though its full-year outlook did come in light. Those shares are down 2 percent. And H&R Block beat on both lines as well and announced a 10 percent dividend increase. Those shares are popping 6 percent. Oh. Well, up next, the CEO of Sunrun on why the Inflation Reduction Act, which was packed with clean energy incentives, hasn't turned out to be a huge win for solar stocks. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Overtime. It has been one year since the Inflation Reduction Act passed, uh, bringing in a wave of investments to the solar sector. Despite the boom in investments, the sector has underperformed in the past year. The TAN ETF is down more than 30 percent and finished the day lower as well. Solar stocks had a rough session today, specifically as rising rate fears hit the sector. But joining us now is Mary Powell. She is the CEO of Sunrun. Mary, it's great to have you on. I do want to get specifically the impact from IRA. It's, uh, it's one year out this week, have you have you seen it have a meaningful impact on, on your business or given the fact that this is going to be an investment that plays out over many years, is it is it something to think about over the longer term? Oh, my gosh, yes. So, again, it's so nice to be on the show with you and to talk about the work that we're doing, you know, across the country to help Americans have a more affordable, resilient clean energy future. Um, and there is no doubt that the Inflation Reduction Act was just really powerful in accelerating this customer-led revolution to an energy system that's more affordable for all. So 
Um, yeah, so we're really pleased. In fact, the Inflation Reduction Act, a lot of the incentives are actually uh, geared towards communities and homes and customers um, that we already have been building deep relationships with over a number of years. So we are deep in low and moderate income homes across America. We've been selling in energy communities. So we're really pleased that the Inflation Reduction Act is going to help us accelerate that work for Americans and give them, you know, a cleaner, more affordable energy future. Yeah. And of course, when we talk about Sunrun, we're talking about a company that's offering solar power as a, serv a service. You essentially rent homeowners a system that is going to eventually pay for itself um, through lower or eliminated energy bills in general. Um, how do you and balance... We're, we're a lot more than that, too, though, because okay. we're also leader in the nation in providing storage to homes. And we're seeing rapid adoption in storage. So we're not just providing solar, we're really providing clean energy as a service for customers all across the country in a way with low friction, you know, no money down, and they can move into, you know, a cleaner, more affordable energy future that is also more resilient because they're able to store their energy and then use it to back up their home or in many ways work with us to provide energy back to the grid to make the entire grid more affordable and resilient for all. Yeah. Um, so how do you balance that against something like higher interest rates, which have, for better or worse, dragged the entire sector down and, and all the stocks with it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think what you always do is you use these opportunities to make your business stronger. And that's what Sunrun has done. I, you know, we just posted really strong results in our last earnings call. Uh, we're very focused on sustainable, profitable growth. And you know, we laid out a really good path towards cash generation. So Sunrun has used this this time to make ourselves faster, better and stronger for all of the customers that we serve and ultimately for our shareholders. OK, very, very quick question for you here because we're up against the end of the hour. But is enough solar equipment being made and storage equipment being made in the U.S.? Well, one of the things that the Inflation Reduction Act does is it's bringing more production and more manufacturing into the United States, which is wonderful because it provides more options for Americans. And we also already use a lot of products that will benefit from the domestic content adder um, and, again, make energy more affordable for the customers that we're bringing these solutions to. All right. Mary Powell, CEO of Sunrun, thanks so much for joining us here. Thank you. Well, uh, quite a day we've got ahead. We've talked a lot about retail. We've got TJX before the bell. We've got Target also before the bell, so that cost-conscious consumer. But Synopsys and Cisco after the bell. Synopsys in particular performing well software for building things like chips. Yeah, and of course, China was in focus today with weaker-than-expected data. Again, Cisco, we know that's a market for that company, among so many others, so something to watch. That's going to do it for us here at Overtime. Fast Money starts now. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of an infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. 
Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available.